I might still be using Photoshop to this day if it wasn't for the fact that someone created PixInsight and I happened to um, work hard to learn it and actually really fell in love with it. A lot of them are just really fantastic if you think about how far things have come for us to be doing this in our backyards, basically. And uh, taking images that were once in the realm of, of professional observatories is just uh, mind-boggling, I think. Please welcome everybody, Sean Nielsen, to our podcast. He is an astrophotographer from Ontario, Canada, and he runs a website, visibledark.ca, and he also has a YouTube channel, Visible Dark Astro. He is a big user of PixInsight, so let's get started. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Space Junk, a weekly podcast dedicated to the amazing hobby of amateur astronomy. Each week, we'll bring you interesting and fun discussions with an eye towards providing you with the latest information and advice on the tools, gadgets, software, and techniques for maximizing your enjoyment of the night sky. Your hosts are Tony Darnell from DeepAstronomy.Space and Dustin Gibson from OPT Telescopes, a world leader in telescopes and accessories. Sean, you are doing incredible work, man. Where are you in the country? Thank you. Um, I am actually in Canada, in uh, Kitchener, Ontario, Canada. And uh, where where is I've that? Been, uh, I guess I don't know Canada as um, well as I should. Southern Ontario, so um, it's sort of it's maybe about two hours away from Niagara Falls uh, if you're heading north. Oh, okay, yeah. So you're pretty far east out there then. Yeah. So you know where you know where Toronto is, I would assume. Yes. Okay, so we're just about an hour uh, west of Toronto. Okay, is where where I'm located. Yeah. yeah. So when does the when does the cold break for you then that far north? Oh, it uh, it's kind of hard to say. It it sometimes stretches into April, but um, uh, I usually start seeing some more clear skies near the end of February and into March. Uh, We go through our cloudy season, as we call it here, and uh, it usually starts about mid-November and it carries through. So um, I'm hoping that uh, those clear skies will start coming soon. But uh, usually end of February, March is when we start seeing temperatures warm up and uh, we start getting back into some clear skies. You know, with with having weather that's so uncooperative, you're still able to put out a lot of content. Mm. Yeah, well, um, a lot of the content focuses on uh, PixInsight in particular and how to use it. Um, That's uh, pretty uh, daunting software for uh, image processing. And um, there's a lot of people that are using it and there's a lot of people that want Mm -hmm. to use it. And uh, so those videos are actually fairly uh, easy to produce. You can obviously do them inside, uh, doing videos that are outside and uh, uh, trying to get new images to work with and doing these new videos. That's that's tough when it's the cloudy season. So things sort of slow down a bit on that end of it. But once uh, once I get the better weather coming in the clear skies, I can start pumping out more content. Yeah, well, it sounds like you've got uh, still a little bit uh, to get you there, though, right? I mean... Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's coming. The forecast is showing some signs of hope. So <laughs> Good. <laughs> maybe my sanity will return because I'm going crazy right now. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm interested in that because you decided to tackle... Uh, PixInsight, which when you say it's daunting, I mean, for mm-hmm. anyone listening that hasn't used PixInsight, mm-hmm. you know, imagine Photoshop if nothing in it were intuitive. You know, it's like a super complete. Right. You mean super, like Photoshop? Yeah. Well, like I Photoshop. Think that most people, though, <laughs> exactly. have kind of learned, if you're into photography at all, you've kind of learned the language of Photoshop or at least Lightroom. You know, with PixInsight, they're like, yeah, of course you know what the hollow circle means against the square versus the triangle, you know, on each, like, 
there's right. nothing about it that's instructional. Yeah, there's there's not a lot of instructional information out there on it. It's growing. It's getting better. Um, I know that the team at Pix Insight is is developing more documentation as we go along, but it was never something that uh, was um, out of the gate. Uh, had a lot of info on how to use it or what the the terminology meant for uh, a lot of the uh, scripts and stuff that are used with inside it. So. Um, it was uh, it was pretty tough. I when I started using Pix Insight, um, I actually didn't like it. Um, I found it extremely frustrating to use, and um, that uh, um, led me to go back to Photoshop. Actually, I sort of fell backwards and um, continued to use Photoshop. But then a friend of mine, uh, Ron Breacher, who's uh, an astrophotographer, and he he was uh, the guy that got me onto Pix Insight. Um, I uh, started uh, trying it again and he was instrumental in, in teaching me some of the things that he had learned with it. And uh, once you sort of get the basic understanding of how to um, calibrate your images in it and how to do a, a rough process of, it, um, of, a, of an image, it actually isn't that hard. It starts to sink in and, uh, and then you start getting sucked into it because it's, uh, it's a really powerful program and there's a lot of uh, features that are really... Uh, really quite useful when you're processing images. Okay, before we get too far down into the PixInsight road, I, we, we should take a step and just introduce it to people who maybe have never used it before. So this is a software package. Is, is it available? for? It's for processing after, uh, yeah. images that come off of a camera. Yeah. Is it, does it run on Windows, uh, Macs, and, and Linux? Or It runs on Windows and okay. it runs on in Linux. Yeah, I'm not sure about Mac myself, but I know that it runs on Linux. I'm pretty sure about that and uh, Windows definitely because that's what I'm using it on. So uh, Does yeah, it cost money? Uh, yeah, it's about, uh, the last price I saw was about 350 euros, if I'm not mistaken, um, or somewhere in that price range. Um, so it, um, it's not necessarily, uh, cheap, but it's cheaper than Photoshop in the long run. If you consider, uh, the current cost of, uh, of, you know, uh, using Photoshop through Adobe's platform, uh, if you're using it that way. <laughs> Yeah. Nowadays, you have to pretty much get a subscription and you, you, you do. stay that way. Ab but, absolutely. But you That's can't right. buy it outright. Yeah. Well, uh, so you uh, runs on Windows and Linux, which is mm -hmm. that's awesome. That yeah, you can get it for Linux. Uh, but uh, it does it, it does it work primarily with FITS data or does it work with any other kind of image formats? It works primarily with FITS data, but it also supports um, raw images from Canon, as example. So you can import your CR2 uh, data and uh, work with it just as you would uh, a FITS file. So um, it's really pretty uh, complete. I haven't found any files that won't load into it. Yeah, there. Yeah, it's it's. Yeah, there pretty much isn't anything that that won't load into it for them. You know, for the most part, I haven't. I haven't actually ran into anything myself that you know I can say that I had a problem with. So it's pretty well rounded in that sense. Even Fujifilm, you know, because they use that X-Trans sensor, which doesn't have a typical Bayer. Instead of having mm -hmm. a Bayer matrix that's red, green, green, blue, theirs is across thirty-six pixels before it repeats again, mm -hmm. and. Um, you know, really, it took forever for Photoshop and Lightroom to support that because you think about how much work that puts on the software developers to have to, you know, everyone else has this standard and then you broke that. Yeah. Um, I was really, really surprised to see yeah. such a small program. Well, the developers at Pixinsight, they're 
Pleiades Astro, they've really uh, put a lot of work. They poured a lot of work into this and, uh, um, oh, yeah. heart and soul and that. And, uh, and it, it, you know, they're, they're amateur astronomers, they're astrophotographers too. So they have the passion for it. And, uh, it certainly shows in the, uh, the software, I think anyways, and how it's developed just in the last, uh, two years, even it's, uh, it's actually developed quite uh, rapidly and expanded. Sean, can I just ask you about, was, while we're on the topic of Pix Insight, why would I want to use this other than it being um, suited? It's designed for astrophotography. I get that. It can read Fitz images, mm-hmm. but why would I spend that 350 bucks or whatever it is mm-hmm. uh, to use this over, over the, uh, over say something like Photoshop or even something that's free that's out there that can work with Fitz data? And, and why would I go through that learning curve? Why would I want to do that? What's the advantage? Um, that's a really good question. And I asked myself that a lot too, uh, why I did that. Um, the end result is really, I, I come back to the fact that it's uh, the, the PixInsight program is, is designed for astrophotography. So it has a lot of uh, features built into it that are specific for that, uh, for those type of, of images. Um, whereas Photoshop, as example, is more of a, a you know, it, it's a, a platform, a wide platform that it's geared towards. It's not really specific to uh, astrophotography. Um, now, that being said, um, there, you know, it really depends on what you like, what your preference is in, in the end. Um, and I, I might still be using Photoshop to this day if it wasn't for the fact that someone created PixInsight and I happened to um, work hard to learn it and actually really fell in love with it. Um, but whether you use Photoshop or you use PixInsight, um, they're both they're both very good programs, and they both can achieve great results in terms of processing your astrophotography images. I just find that the PixInsight is more geared towards that, and it has the um, the the capabilities built into it to make it a little easier. Once you understand the terminology and once you understand the workflow within PixInsight, it actually is a lot easier to produce. Say if you're uh, producing Hubble uh, palette images, as example, using your HLF and your O3 and your S2 uh, filters, um, the the process to actually calibrate and align and combine all of those all of that data um, is actually a lot easier to do than it is in Photoshop. Um, if and you can't even really do it that well in Photoshop. You need another program like Deep Sky Stacker, say, or something like that to do it for you before you even bring it into Photoshop. So PixInsight is well-rounded. It takes care of everything for you from start to finish. It's just a little tough to understand the terminology and it's a little tough to understand the workflow, but it's something that you have to sort of just keep plugging away at, keep practicing and, and keep keep trying to learn. And uh, eventually it'll click one day and you'll be laughing and it'll work great. So does it is the workflow something like this? Then you give PixInsight all your raw images, the ones you've taken of the let's say Orion Nebula. You've taken let's say thirty, mm-hmm. and then you also feed it your darks and your biases and your flats. And then what you get out at the end is a calibrated, co-added fits image. Is that what you get? That's yeah, basically that's exactly what you're getting. So they have a weighted batch pre-processing script within PixInsight that you can um, bring in your light frames, uh, your flat frames, your dark frames, your bias frames, and uh, you can um, have PixInsight. You can basically instruct PixInsight to put all of that together for you. So it'll take all of the flats, all the darks, all the bias, and it'll do what it needs to do to create the masters. And it'll apply that to your light frames and it will align those light frames for you and it'll stack the light frames for you. So it effectively creates the master light frames for you in the end. And you don't have to do very much other than just feed it 
the information that it needs, the, the data that you've collected. Um, once you're done with that, uh, those light frames are available to you to begin processing. And, um, and then that's where you get into your workflow. You you've effectively will develop a workflow at some point um, when you're using PixInsight. And uh, one of the things that I learned in PixInsight for workflow was uh, to create tabs, icons on the side of the workplace, uh, the, the workspace, um, whereby uh, it gives you sort of a, an order of the steps that you would uh, take in order to process an image. And that gives you an idea of what your workflow will be as well. So it gives you a visual on it as you're going along. You know, oh, I got to do this step next. I got to do this step next. And that works really well. That's something that I learned along the way. Well, what's a light frame? Light frame sub. Uh, so your, your basic, your broadband image that you took with the camera or your narrow band image. Okay. Um, yeah, it's referred. I, I don't know what terminology you guys use, uh, but often it's referred to as a light frame. It's referred to a light frame inside, uh, inside PixInsight anyways. And uh, sometimes they call them subs as well. What did you refer to them as? At uh, Dark Sky, or uh, I'm sorry, the um, Dark Energy Survey. Uh, they were just they were just data frames. Um, oh, okay. We just, yeah, because we didn't. Mm -hmm. We just uh, yeah, whatever, whatever. I just hadn't heard the term light frame before. You use the same right. calibration yeah. frame terminology, though. You had flats and biases right. and darks. Yeah, yeah, flats okay. and biases yeah, so, and all that. And so, then there was uh, there was another level of calibration that would go into it as well if you wanted to like automatically extract galaxies and stuff. But that's a, that was a step that was specific to what we were doing. But I was just curious, what you know, if it also rotated and registered these images, or do you just does it do it mm -hmm. on a step by step basis and you come out with a series of fits images that you then have to co add together? But it sounds like it does it all. Yeah, you can do it two ways. You can certainly have it uh, produce all of the uh, uh, frames that are aligned and ready to stack on your own if you wanted to do it that way. Um, because you can you can do some fine tune adjustments in PixInsight with the stacking routine. Uh, but I find that the weighted batch pre-processing script that they've developed, which is a new one um, that they introduced just a f uh, about maybe two or three months ago, um, which uh, replaced the original one. Um, that new script works really well for taking care of pretty much everything that you need to do in terms of uh, calibrating, aligning, and uh, stacking those images to to end up with your master uh, light frames that you can work with. Do you use it much, Dustin? PixInsight, or do you do something else? I use it for most of my images, actually. it's I, I went the same way you did, Sean. I got into it because it was recommended to me by a friend that was, he was just doing this incredible work. And he's like, you got to have PixInsight. And after about a week of trying it, I just got frustrated. Mm -hmm. I didn't want to mess with it. I didn't want to learn. I felt like every step just was so much more complicated mm -hmm. than it needed to be. And um, I got away from it. I went back to Photoshop and um, started looking for other things. I was using Nebulosity a lot, which I still really like Nebulosity. I started out with Nebulosity. Like yeah. And that was, that was a great program. Yeah. 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 I, I really like Nebulosity and the, the simplicity of it. Craig Stark did such a good job with that. But, but uh, it's just such a complete program picks insight is that the appeal was always there it's like well if i could just get over this learning curve then you know i could i could do so much more with my images i, I always knew that to be the case it just took me a long time to really want to commit to it and to learn it all and mm -hmm. um and, and i still feel like i mean i haven't i haven't just but grazed the surface of 
PixInsight. There's so much you can do. Yeah, and I yeah. really just use a handful of tools. Yeah, I agree with that entirely. Mm -hmm. uh, I probably, even with the amount of knowledge that I have of PixInsight, there's still a <coughs> lot that I don't use within it that uh, I would have to learn and understand uh, more of its purpose and, and how it could improve on the images that I'm taking. But um, for the for now, anyways, uh, with the amount that I do understand in PixInsight and the amount of time it takes to process an image, that's probably enough for me. <laughs> You know, when you spend right. eight, 10 hours processing an image, um, you're not literally looking to add more time to it necessarily. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I, I don't do anything like that. My image processing time is like 10 minutes. You oh, know, really? I just, oh, geez. Yeah. I, just, <laughs> I wish mine was I, 10 I minutes. I run through it. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. I, I run through it. It's not the part I enjoy. I enjoy the shooting. I don't enjoy, you know, the processing, sitting yeah. at the computer with everything. That part. Yeah tends to frustrate me. Well, and I think the processing got a little more. I, the, I, I found that the uh, astrophotography hobby has gotten a lot more competitive. Uh, people trying to um, really, you know, come up with that wow image. And uh, they're really putting a lot mm -hmm. of great work into it, a lot of hard work into it. So, you know, you, you got to up your ante and uh, spend the extra time when you're doing uh, data acquisition or, uh, or even right. processing is what I found. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, definitely. And and it is. It, it's becoming a, a fairly competitive environment, which is, it is fun yeah. to watch. I don't really participate mm -hmm. uh, in the competition side of it, you know, but yeah. um, it is fun to watch because you're seeing the best all push each other mm -hmm. and just crank out this work that's you know, incredible. What wouldn't be possible? Yeah. Some of it's just phenomenal to see. Um, I'm really impressed with a lot of the, uh, the images that are being uh, posted to social media and, and whatnot on different forums that, uh, people have taken and, and, you know, whatever they've utilized to produce them, um, is, a lot of them are just really fantastic. If you think about how far things have come for us to be doing this in our backyards, basically, and uh, taking images that were once in the realm of, of professional observatories is just uh, mind boggling. Right. I think. Absolutely. And, you know, I think that people that understand computers, it seems like take to picks insight really quickly. And I don't mean in general, but I mean like computer programmers. Mm -hmm. And yeah. like I feel like this is probably a program that would immediately click for you, Tony, you know, with the background you have and everything. Yeah, it sounds because like even it. like Rogelio, when we were mm -hmm. talking to Rogelio, like he, he gets, I mean, he's writing a book, a full book on picks insight, you know, and I feel like uh, people that really have that computer background, it, it just makes sense to them. Whereas, you know, everyone else, it's like, what the hell am I looking at? Yeah, if you have a computer background or you're very, uh, uh, very much into math, um, PixInsight will make sense to you really quickly and, and whatnot. So it's uh, definitely geared towards a special someone. Um, but uh, it doesn't mean that you know, you can't learn it, even if you're, it's not your thing. Some people are more artistic than, than they are mathematical, right? So um, it uh, just takes a little while to get used to PixInsight. And uh, like I said, it's terminology. Uh, it, it, the terminology, for the most part, is kind of mm -hmm. throws you off, I think. Some of the, the crazy names, the fancy names right. that they have for things, um, which you'd, you'd think, well, why didn't they just call it this? Or <laughs> why didn't they just call it that? You know, it'd be more, more you know, right. easy to understand. And yeah. they didn't, right? You know, like multi-scale linear transform. What the heck is that? I have mm -hmm. no idea what to do with that right so um 
you know, stuff like that. But once you start understanding what the basic uh, tools do and, and you know, uh, then it, it becomes a lot easier to utilize the program. And it's got, it's got a lot of, like I said, a lot of good features in it that uh, really delve into the fine details of, of um, processing an image that uh, even Photoshop wouldn't have. If you look at like noise reduction, as example, um, compared to Photoshop, PixInsight's noise reduction capabilities and the tools that it has, um, phenomenal uh, compared to Photoshop. Photoshop just doesn't have anything that would compare to it. So there's a lot of reasons to make that switch to PixInsight, not just for noise reduction, but this carries over to other aspects too of the processing. Well, it sounds like it's uh, adding a professional element to your your amateur data. So to me, that sounds like definitely, definitely. worth doing. I want to tell you just mm -hmm. a real quick story about something that occurred to me while you guys were talking about this program. When I was at the Dark Energy Survey, I worked with a man, really talented guy, Emmanuel Berton, and he wrote a, a, a software program that was command line driven. It sounds a lot like what uh, PixInsight does, uh, except that it did it for uh, astronomy data. When, whenever there's large amounts of data that come in, terabytes of data, you don't look at each image individually, but you want to know how many galaxies, for example, are in there. And you also want to know if those galaxies are one on top of the other or are they two separate galaxies? That's called deep blending. Well, he wrote this software program where you could basically configure it in any way you wanted with a with a config file. And people's research depended on this program. That's how widespread it was used throughout the professional world. And he called it Source Extractor. But in order to use it, you had to type in sex because he he was it was like uh, it was sex extra, source extractor s extractor. The first time I saw it, I thought sex tractor. And, and then so and then I talked to him about it. I said, why did you name this thing what you did? Because because I just love the idea of professional astronomers typing in sex on the command. Um. <laughs> so there's a little bit of professional That's funny. for you there. Yeah. <laughs> but that was it was it was a lot like this. The learning curve was steep. You had so many uh, variables you had to configure. I was lucky enough or I was you know, actually quite honored that one of my routines for normalizing a point spread function for a specific telescope was included in the source code. So it was um, it was mm -hmm. a really uh, it was like the standard for people who did surveys and looked at large areas of the sky and needed to extract, you know, magnitude 20 galaxies. You know, we're talking dim stuff. So, um, you right. know, it was uh, it was really a cool project and this what uh, this reminds me a lot mm -hmm. of that in the sense that it's a used it's ubiquitous it's very capable and it's uh quite professional in terms of the fits images that you get back yeah uh, i wouldn't um in just going back to pix insight there for a second i wouldn't uh um necessarily get too caught up in, the, in what software you use initially when you're getting started um you know, PixInsight, as I said, is pretty complicated and it takes a, there's a learning curve to it. So um, if you're using a software currently that uh, uh, like Photoshop or something similar that's available for free that uh, you understand, um, that would be the best way to, to go about getting uh, started on it. That's how I did anyways. Uh, and uh, Photoshop was uh, producing some great images for me back in the day when I first started. And I tried to keep it, uh, I eventually learned to keep it simple, um, where when I first got into the uh, hobby, it was rather... I, I did it the hard way. So um, I just wanted to throw that in there real quick, though, about PixInsight, because, uh, you know, you, you know, when you get into a, a hobby or you start doing something, it becomes, you know, it seems like a lot of work or it's really just too frustrating and you you abandon that 
um, that effort. Um, I don't want anyone to necessarily fall victim to that uh, like I did where, um, you know, I just, I started out wrong and uh, made things really difficult for myself instead of making it fun and, and keeping it fun. So, well, that's the beauty in a lot of what you're doing now, Sean, I think is that, you know, both of us got started and then jumped out of Pix Insight because it was just frustrating, mm-hmm. but you're kind of carving a yeah. path through those weeds for people to just say, okay, trying to, this yeah. will get me from A to B without that frustration. And I think that's very yeah. important. Yeah. Well, yeah, um, I, I get a lot of feedback from the YouTube channel, uh, from people that are just getting started and, and learning picks and sight or want to, and uh, they certainly convey that the videos that I'm producing are helpful to them and uh, provide them with uh, some insight into uh, into the program and, and how to use it, uh, which is great. Um, but I understand that it can still be challenging, and uh, I, I one thing that I I found as I went through the hobby, uh, over the years was that the, um, it's, I I sometimes made it more work than fun. And that was a a bad direction to take the, uh, take the uh, interest I had in astrophotography because the, uh, the, when you, when you turn it into a job and you make it feel like a job, um, it, it's sort of that it's not as fun Mm -hmm. (laughs) anymore. You lose the fun component to it. So, um, that's why, you know, I, I like to help people learn picks and sight if that's what they're interested in doing, but you don't necessarily have to start with that. A lot of, we got a lot of great astrophotographers um, producing some fantastic images that are still using Photoshop as example. And, uh, and it might be easier in some cases for people to uh, use Photoshop versus, uh, picks and sight and get started in the hobby and keep it fun as they learn and progress. Well, and I, I usually assume that anyone that really gets deep into the hobby will end up with Picks Insight, but um, I almost mm-hmm. always recommend people starting with Nebulosity just because the success rate goes so far up, you know, with people. I used Nebulosity when I first started and it was a great program. I loved it. I would, uh, it was great in the field too. And I traveled to dark sites and, uh, because it was a, it was a very, you know, small compact program and it uh, worked really well gathering the, the, uh, the data that I needed and, uh, and then even just processing it, you know, calibrating the images and producing the masters was great to use it. And, uh, and then I would take those masters over to Photoshop though, and, uh, and finish uh, processing in Photoshop. So, uh, but Nebulosity, I, I love that program. I used that for many years, actually when I was first starting out. Yeah, the Nebulosity PhD combo, the whole thing costs like 95 bucks or something. And yeah, and it's, yeah it doesn't cost very it's much everything. at all. It's, yeah. you know, data acquisition, guiding and processing. So that's, it's a tough yeah, combo yeah. to beat. You can do, you can do it all in there if you wanted yeah. to. Yeah. It's a great, it's a great place to start. Definitely. That's for sure. Yeah. I would, uh, I would recommend Nebulosity. Yeah. So what, uh, is it still updated? Uh, yeah, yeah. Craig was actually in the studio not long ago. He or he was on the podcast. What just? Is that a, right? Yeah, I wanted to remind people he was on a he was on a podcast several episodes ago. So yeah, yeah, definitely check that out. Fantastic. Okay. Yeah, that's great. That's good to know. Yeah, because I I haven't used it in years. But I mean, like I said, when I started out, it was uh, it was a great program, and it sounds like uh, he's keeping up with it. So that's fantastic for anyone new that's uh, getting into the hobby. Yeah, he's done a phenomenal job with it. But let me ask you, Sean, what kind of uh, equipment are you using right now? Ah, interesting question. Um, well, uh, I've gone through a lot of different equipment since I started. When I first started, um, just to give you a bit of background real quick, uh, I was using a, uh, a uh, an unmodified, so a stock uh, DSLR 350 Rebel that I had bought refurbished uh, from a local electronics store. And um, I had that hooked onto a 8-inch uh, CPC 800, an SCT, and I was running at F10 
and uh, I was trying to do astro astrophotography, and it wasn't even on an, uh, an EQ wedge; it was alt as. So um, I was really setting myself up for a lot of failures in that uh, regard. But um, I've progressed over the years with different equipment, uh, different uh, type of refractors, and different type of uh, reflectors, and, and whatnot. But currently, um, I'm using an Esprit 100 uh, from Skywatcher. And I have a uh, Moravian uh, 16200 uh, enhanced cooling uh, CCD with the filter wheel built inside that uh, is attached to it. And I also have I also have a, a broadband camera that I bought um, on the side uh, 168 a QHY 168C. Um, I brought that bought that specifically for testing some of these new filters that are out for uh, broadband cameras, um, where you can take narrowband data with them, your H alpha and your O3 uh, all in one shot. And uh, uh, I was curious to explore that a bit, so I bought this uh, this QHY camera to do that specifically, and uh, that's been that's been really interesting. Actually, I get a, a very good results uh, using that, especially from my light polluted skies. Yeah, yeah, you did the video with our triad filter. That's right. Yeah, the triad filter was really fun. Um, I had a lot of fun working with that filter and the image uh, that it produced. And um, I, I often recommend it uh, to people when I'm uh, talking with them about uh, um, equipment and uh, what they could add to their arsenal that uh, uh, would be useful because uh, that that filter worked really well. I liked it a lot. In fact, I, I found that it worked better than some of its competitors uh, out there. And um, I would definitely recommend that one for sure. It's um, it was one of those things where, you know, we put it out, um, you know, it's especially the Triad Ultra, because then we were talking about, you know, sub five nanometer uh, passes. So really, mm -hmm. really narrow. I mean, they're four nanometer passes, but we put that thing out and then we immediately started seeing these other uh, filters coming out and like, all right, great. Like there's going to be some good stuff coming out here. Maybe somebody will do a three or, or whatever it is. But mm -hmm. what ended up happening was a lot of them just came out as other light pollution filters and then said like, oh, well, this is, you know, 25 nanometers, so we can say it gets, you know, multiple band passes in it. But it's really like, eh, that's just more of what's always been there. That's just, you know, a wide filter that's mm -hmm. going to let a lot of light pollution in. But the Ultra is, mm -hmm. I mean, it's almost Hubble narrow. It's truly four passes yes. at four nanometers. I mean, we're talking about, like, I just shot uh, with the super moon out this week and, uh, I live literally right now. There's a huge street lamp right in my front yard and right between the two, I took a picture of the back of my scope to show this because it's just funny, but literally pointed between the street lamp and a super moon <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> shot the rosette right through it, you know, and it's just showing up. And that was with just like a Fujifilm camera Yeah, and it just shows oh, that's up. That's a great, mm -hmm. that's a great test. Uh, yeah. I mean, it mm -hmm. shows up, uh, in color yeah, sure. right there on the back of the camera and it looks like any other photo I've taken, you know, it's just like signal is through the roof because you know, you're so narrow. Yeah. So it's, it's a lot of fun. It's really phenomenal what you can do with the filters. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I had uh, uh, narrow band. If you're in the city situation, uh, definitely is a, a good road to go in terms of astrophotography um, and uh, utilizing these. It's great to see the, these filters coming out onto the market and that, uh, that there is a market exactly. for these yeah. filters um, and these, these technologies that, uh, you know, we can harness and uh, make the hobby even better um, in, in light of the problems that we, uh, uh, battle in in trying to do our hobby yeah. you know with uh, the ever-growing light pollution situation and whatnot so and how is your situation out there how bad is the light pollution um well 
my city is actually doing better than most. Um, we're still classified at the city core. We're still classified as a Bortle 8 sky. Um, but in my, I'm on the outskirts of the city, so I'm dealing more of a Bortle 6 sky for the most part on average. And um, if I'm shooting into the west, I get into maybe a five uh, because there's it's just agricultural land in that direction. So there's not a lot of light pollution emanating from it. But um, uh, my city is is working. They are working towards reducing light pollution. Um, it's something that I actively engaged in. I've been doing since 2008, actually, and uh, uh, advocating for better lighting. Um that uh, has led me down uh, a lot of different paths and and uh, I've been in you know contact with a lot of different people and discussing things and even our, our uh, street lights being switched to LED that was something that I was involved with for uh, over a year in inputting information and stuff so that we could maybe get it right instead of getting it wrong like so many cities and towns have um, so we're sort of considered much to my surprise in some discussions I've had online with uh, the uh, light pollution abatement um, that Kitchener is actually considered a bit of a trendsetter when it comes to um, lighting and the uh, initiatives that we're undertaking in, in trying to protect um, and maintain dark skies as best as we can. But it's hard to do when you have a city that's growing mm -hmm. and you're having new houses going up and new commercial buildings going up because along with that comes all the new lights and uh, it's a never-ending problem. But right. um, we're certainly making strides to try and... Uh, use better lighting and to use shielded lighting lighting that's you know directed down and not up and that it's uh but there's still there's still more that we could do so um that's that's a battle that's uh ongoing for me that's great that you're getting some wins you know that i mean how many people have we heard tony saying that they're fighting the light pollution thing and then you know they mm -hmm. just can't like they don't they can't get the wins that you're talking about the city doesn't listen or people are just the word that yeah, comes it's up really is tough safety Everybody's like, well, you can't make it darker. It's going to be unsafe. Yeah, you get you get a lot of uh, perception that comes into play. People, um, false notions that uh, people want to use to justify uh, lighting or more lighting or uh, over lighting. And uh, it simply isn't supported by the science out there at all. In fact, there's, uh, there's actually scientific uh, research, uh, controlled research studies that were done um, with cities that um, they uh, uh, increased the lighting in one town and they decreased it in another and the crime actually went up in the city that had more lighting than the, the than the other city the other city didn't have an increase in crime and uh, it was kind of interesting that the more light the more criminal activity there was so there's a lot of science that disproves uh, some of these perceptions but uh, what you get for the most part is the officials and politicians uh, um talking about the the usual um, spin on uh, going to something like LED lighting, which is that it saves energy and it reduces the, uh, the, the greenhouse gas emissions and whatnot. And people understand that. And that's what they absorb out of it. Um, a lot of times they don't realize that even though uh, you have this new technology, uh, it doesn't mean it's automatically environmentally friendly. 
at all. And um, you can, you know, like with most technologies, there's good and bad and there's good and bad ways of using it. And unfortunately, um, we started out into the LED uh, realm of things around the world on the bad side. And it's only in the last year or two that um, the research and and uh, the manufacturers are actually starting to come on board more now and produce amber LED, which is where we need to be back at because a lot of cities are mimicking daylight, which is just very bad for the night environment um, across the board. And uh, we need to get away from that. And it's, it's hard to do, but um, uh, it's something that uh, people are battling more and more. And I see a lot more activity and a lot more, a lot more talk about light pollution. And I think eventually it'll sort of become something that sinks in and, and becomes more important to society. Uh, but it's going to take a lot uh, more of a uh, learning uh, curve uh, for uh, not only the uh, advocates, but also for the, the people, um, just the general public to uh, be able to absorb and understand that even light can be a, a pollutant in their environment. So the blue, the bluer LEDs are not good uh, for night lights, while the amber ones are better? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. The, uh, yeah, you're basically anything that what they're saying now basically is 3000 K and up. So your 3000, your 4000, your 5000 K LEDs, those are, those are really not good to be using. Um, if you're going to use any of them though, you'd want to stick with the 3000 K cause it's a, a warm white as opposed to a, a bright white, uh, with lots of blue in it, like the 5000 K would be. So, um, you get into, um, very very bad adverse effects on the uh, night environment ecosystems the more that you mimic daylight because it, it throws off a lot of uh, uh, like foraging patterns and predator prey patterns um, with regards to wildlife or insects and stuff and we're seeing a, a huge decline in the insect population because of the uh, increase of light pollution around the world and um, the LEDs if, if they're not done right they're not helping they're actually increasing light pollution even though you'll hear from officials, you know, over and over again, and even in the, the newspapers and, and whatnot, uh, you'll see, you know, they're, they're talking how it reduces light pollution. And that simply is not true in all cases. Well, hang on just a minute, though. We, this is, some of this isn't new. I mean, mercury vapor lamps had the same color temperature as a lot of these LEDs do. And we didn't mm-hmm. hear about the, the migratory insect patterns and all of that kind of stuff being affected by it. Now, admittedly, there's a lot more of it now than there has been when we were using mercury Mm -hmm. vapor lamps. But a big reason for going from mercury vapor, which people still use today, it's not really changed any, uh, to uh, sodium vapor lamps is that they were at least they had the advantage or the you know, characteristic that they could be filtered uh, by astronomy filters. And many, many towns built near observatories have, you see just a sea of orange everywhere because it's all sodium vapor lamps. So um, I'm curious about that argument about night. I mean, I'm sure it is affected. I'm not disputing the science, but I'm I'm wondering, this this has always been a problem then because LEDs uh, have the same color temperature as a lot of mercury vapor lamps, and those have been around for decades. So we must have always had this problem. I, th- 
Yeah, I th- the problem actually goes back, um, you know, uh, in terms of research, uh, it goes back uh, a couple decades or more. Um, there is research to support that even even your high pressure sodium and your low pressure sodium lighting um, was a problem in terms of environmental impacts, depending on how you used mm-hmm. it, um, whether it was full cutoff or it wasn't and, and, you know, things like that over lighting versus using just enough light for the situation. So, um, but I think also what we're seeing is um, a dramatic upswing in terms of the uh, research that's being done on light pollution and its effects on various species, uh, be that, uh, you know, wildlife or insect or plant species um, or even its effect on us. But um, there's more and more of it being done and there's more researchers, more professionals out there looking into this problem. And I think even though the problem already existed, I think it's only at this point that with the amount of research and study that we're putting into it, that we're seeing um, uh, come out of it, that uh, we're really beginning to understand it and take it more seriously. And um, I hope so. Um, so I hope you're right. Yeah. I mean, it would be great to see if everyone would just turn off their lights at night. You know, that's a light pollution is a really, it, it's kind of funny because light pollution is one of the easiest pollutions to fix in, in our world. <laughs> I know. You know, just turn off the light. Well, it's, it's a flip of a the, switch, I literally, know. The, right? The IDA but, has been fighting a lot of these myths for decades, right? This mm-hmm. idea that crime is, is correlated with, you know, lights mm-hmm. and all this kind of stuff. And, and it simply and isn't why, true. Why, no. why, why do car dealerships have to be seen from space? I'll never understand that. Yeah. Right. So it's like, they don't, they don't, but they'll go back to security, <laughs> yeah, you know, know. <laughs> but light, light, a, a light fixture doesn't call nine one one. you know what I mean? So it, you're better off to have on site security personnel and video cameras and stuff. That's security. Oh, yeah. Or right? even IR cameras. I mean, these IR cameras are amazing now that they got for yeah, security. Exactly. So. <laughs> yeah. Are LEDs, um, are they filterable by these filters that uh, we're using in amateur astronomy? Not really. Pretty broadband for the most part. So um, it's, yeah, uh, it can filter a little bit of the problem, but um, LED has certainly made it a lot more challenging for astrophotography. Um, but that being said, I mean, I'm surrounded by LED lighting for the most part and in my situation, and um, I don't have, uh, uh, I, I, I don't really have a huge impact occurring in terms of my uh, ability to image the night sky and produce some uh, good images. Um, it just takes uh, a little bit of thought as to what type of image you're, Im- you're, you're going to image. Uh, you know, it's how bright it is and, and given your, you know, situation that you're dealing with in terms of your sky glow and whatnot. Um, and also how you're going to approach it in terms of uh, the technologies that are available to image with, whether you're going to do narrow band or you're going to do broadband and, and what filters you're going to use. So, um, I'd say that um, we don't have a solution to effectively notch out LED and the problem that it poses, uh, depending on the, the the Kelvin and stuff that you're dealing with. But um, uh, it it doesn't mean that uh, it's the end of the world either. You can still continue to to you know produce some great uh, astro images. Well, you can go along really far by just using a full cutoff light fixture, man. Just fucking just point them to the ground. Amazing yeah. what it, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, I was wondering when you said that you had been, uh, you had some success out there with the light pollution issue. I was just wondering, you know, what kind of pellet guns were you guys all running around there with taking out all these street lamps, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, man. That was actually, that was something that was suggested to me by a few people, actually. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, um, 
Yeah, no, it's it's been a. I, I mean, I won't say it's easy. It's um, uh, doing the light pollution advocacy is uh, almost what I consider a part time job. Um, it takes a lot of uh, phone calls, and there's a lot of emails, and there's a lot of research that goes into it. And uh, the average person um, just wouldn't be doing what I do um, in terms of trying to fight, um, you know, a, a pollutant the way that I am. But that being said, um, it's something that's uh, affecting uh, a passion of mine. Um, the night sky is important to me. So it was a natural fit to be an advocate for it watching. I mean, I, I remember back 30, 40 years looking up at the night sky here and I could see the Milky Way over our city. And today that's not possible. It's completely washed out. It's gone. So that, uh, that's pretty frightening. And, um, so I, I keep trying and I keep uh, plugging away at it and, um, you, man. Good for you. and it's yeah, an uphill it's, battle. It's incredible what you're doing, Sean. Yeah. I mean, all the way Thank around, yeah. uh, in, in your work really is phenomenal. Anyone that hasn't seen your, uh, YouTube videos, what's the easiest way to get to your, to your channel? Uh, the easiest way is just to go to YouTube and, uh, do a search for uh, visible dark astro. Yep. I did. And if they do that, did it before we started and, and subbed it, and I'm ready yeah, to go. No, I think, it's, yeah, I think my <laughs> mugshot comes up there. So, work. You can so what's quickly, got you, I mean, uh, click on you're it. doing a lot. What's got you so committed? Like what, what keeps you mm -hmm. running this hard? Um, what keeps me motivated? Um, <laughs> a lot of coffee. <laughs> um, well, people don't realize when you're in the astronomy business that, you know, your business is during the daytime, but your business is also during the night. So, yeah, what keeps me motivated is um, uh, it's just a sheer passion for the hobby. Um, I love it. Um, if I could, uh, if I could make a full-time living at it, I would definitely, uh, be doing it. Uh, it's just one of those things that, uh, I enjoy and, um, the, uh, you know, it, it like everything, it has pros and cons, uh, from time to time. And, uh, I deal with that and, uh, overcome those hurdles and, uh, continue on with the mission at hand, which is to deliver, um, not only some great images that I take and show people, uh, how they can achieve the same, but, uh, also in my light pollution advocacy and uh and keeping that uh, battle going and uh trying to uh reduce the uh the pollutant that is uh destroying our night sky well why, why don't you give us some advice based on some of the the stuff that you've been through when you started out you've been at this a long time so to the the, the beginners that are listening to our podcast what would you say to them what advice would you give them for starting out mm. either in a in visual or uh astrophotography um, in terms of getting started in the hobby? Yeah. Just what advice would you give somebody that's just um, starting out? If, if you're starting out, um, you know, I started out with a small pirate telescope of sorts. That was my dad's and I was looking at the moon and got fascinated in that uh, manner. Um, and Did then you it say led to yeah, a pirate telescope. A pirate yeah. <laughs> I would I would stand in the kitchen and I would look through this pirate telescope through the, the oh, glass window. Oh, I got <laughs> That's Okay, like... I'm thinking pirate. I've never heard of that brand. Like, okay, yeah. I stand get it. No, it's not a brand. It's just the type of telescope. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Arr, was, did you go arr, arr, and look at the, the moon? Arr. Arr. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so that's so, what yeah, I started are... out with. And that got me <laughs> that got me interested. Telescope. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it was a telescope of sorts. So, um, that's what got me started. And, um, <laughs> I, um, 
I basically started learning the night sky. Uh, that was one important thing was to learn, you know, where the planets were. Obviously, the moon is easy to spot, but um, uh, learning where the planets were and uh, also um, understanding where the constellations were and, and the different stars so that you could find deep sky objects. That was important. Um, you can't just buy a telescope and point it and think that you're going to, you know, be wowed because it doesn't work like that. You have to, you have to put a little bit of uh, a little bit of work into learning the night sky. So definitely um, pick up a, a book or um, even an app for the phone. They've got a lot of apps nowadays yeah, that you advice. can. Some of the apps are great. Some of the apps are fantastic and uh, they give you a good visual, you know, you can hold your phone up and you can see what's in that area of sky that you're pointing your phone towards. It'll actually tell you. So that's a great way to uh, get started. And uh, um, and it doesn't cost a lot to do that, right? To, to appreciate the night sky, you know, just going out on a clear night and seeing um, you know, the moon and, and maybe Jupiter or something like that shining in the night sky is uh, close together is a phenomenal sight to take in. Um, so you don't necessarily have to have a telescope and whatnot to uh, be able to enjoy a lot of these celestial views. And um, other than that, if you're getting into astrophotography, I would definitely um, suggest uh, nowadays uh, getting one of the cooled CCD, or sorry, not CCD, the cooled uh, CMOS cameras that they have available because for the price of them now, um, I mean, it doesn't make sense to use a DSLR anymore. The price point on these cooled uh, uh, astro cameras has come down so much that uh, it's a great uh, means to jump into the hobby and utilize and, and pair that with an appropriate telescope, which is one that's going to be most likely, it, what I would suggest is a refractor because it's easy to use. It, you don't have to constantly collimate it. And... Um, Definitely a short focal length refractor. You don't want a long focal length F7 or F8 or anything like that. You want to keep it uh, F5 or, or, or less um, so that uh, it has a wider field of view for you and it has more light gathering power, which will make things easier when you're learning to actually take astrophotos and you're, uh, um, you know, it's mounted on an equatorial mount and you're guiding and whatnot. Yeah, the uh, I, I guess the only I'm trying to think of one of the advantages of having a DSLR now, and I guess it's because you could use it for other things. Uh, Dustin's yeah. told me a lot about these new Fuji uh, cameras that are out that I'm, I'd like to to try out. But uh, the, the advantage, Tony, is really just having the computer built into the back of it. You know, that's in, that's in the, the advantage. The, is the, not the DSLR. Yeah, yeah. You yeah, know, that's okay. that's the real difference. I mean, you don't have a cooler, but like I was just shooting my Fuji on a little refractor. And I, I agree with everything you were just saying, Sean. I think those are great recommendations, especially the refractor piece. You know, so many people get frustrated by the idea of even collimation, you know, aligning the mirrors each time, that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. But um, the refractor, I just threw the Fuji on it every now and then to test, you know, different products or filters or, or whatever. And that's what I really like about it. It's just the simplicity of one, I'm going to see the image in color. Um, which is fun. It's kind of like fishing and then the image pops up and it's a wow every time. But the other thing is that, uh, you know, the first part of the processing all happens right there when you push the button, the camera does it. You know, it will mm -hmm. even do the dark subtraction each frame for you yeah. so that you don't have to shoot darks. You don't have to do any of that. It's just, you know, in a camera, it's called long exposure noise reduction, but that's exactly what it's doing. It's doing a dark frame each time. Mm -hmm. And so, um, wow, I like that. Incredible. They, I didn't know they did that. Yeah, I like that. And I like that, you know, the processing, a lot of it is built into the camera. So, you know, you don't have to have the computer. You don't have to have, you know, cables or any of that stuff. It's just push the button, see the image. And mm -hmm. so the simplicity is worth a lot. But you do give up cooling. 
Yeah, yeah, you do give up cooling. Um, you do give up uh, some sensitivity too, I think, uh, with regards to um, a stock. Like if you're using a stock DSLR versus a, a, a cooled CMOS, which is, uh, you know, designed for astrophotography. But um, right. uh, you, like you said, the simplicity of the DSLR is uh, very appealing. And um, certainly uh, that was something that um, I had originally uh, done was used a DSLR and... Uh, um, it was, a uh, it was fun just to even put the DSLR with a lens on a tripod and, and take some 20 or 30 second exposures and uh, see the results. So there's a lot of, uh, ways to get into astrophotography that, uh, you know, don't have to break the bank and, um, they don't have to necessarily, uh, be very complicated either. It all depends on, uh, what your interest level is, I guess, and, and, you know, how far you're willing to, well, the amount of time you're willing to commit to it. Yeah, Absolutely. Well, one thing I want to say, Sean, is that I don't think this is said enough by people for content generators like yourself, but I think that what you're doing is so important and giving people digestible information in a way that feels empowering instead of, you know, makes you run from it, um, mm -hmm. which a lot of that out there, a lot of the content being put out there is a look how smart I am type right. system where it's really, you know, yeah. you're either doing it for attention or you're doing it to assist and i think the people that are trying to educate you and tony among those and the people that are trying to put out this content in a meaningful way to really help people it's very obvious what you're doing and why you're doing it and um it's it's really one of the best things about my job and i, I post about this about my life fairly regularly is that you use the word passionate and that's what keeps you doing all this because you're having to run at a mm -hmm. level that you yourself even admitted people wouldn't do what you're doing. No. Nobody wants to break <laughs> up their day and their life that no. much, you That's know, right. but being surrounded by passionate people is such a tremendous advantage in life. Like I can't tell you the kind of conversations that, that I get to have on a daily basis, just being surrounded by people like yourselves. And even when, when Tony was here, like the quality of conversation goes up so much when you're talking to somebody that's passionate about something that there's no way to be uninspired moment to moment. There's no way to sit and do less with your life. But it's such a thin line between yes. watching TV or pushing yourself on something. Like it is a moment by moment decision. And when you're surrounded by passionate people, the decision is always made for you by the excitement and just how contagious that passion mm -hmm. is. That, yeah. you know, I, I don't think people share enough in the comments sections or even through the DMs online or through social media how important this stuff is, but it's very much appreciated what you're doing. And I, and I would imagine that people are, you know, gaining tremendous benefit from both of you. Well, uh, for my side of it, I appreciate the kind words. Thank you very much. Um, I uh, certainly, uh, uh, you know, put a lot of effort into doing what I'm doing and I try to make it uh, appealable to just about anybody, whether that would be someone that's uh, beginning or someone that uh, is more advanced. Um, but I, I, you know, uh, don't necessarily want to have it come across as uh, stiff or or too rigid or all about me because it, it's not about me it's about my interest in the hobby and what I've learned and what I can share with others that'll help make the uh, the hobby that more enjoyable for them yeah when Sean and I were talking before I hit the record button about you know this this attitude of 
wanting to pay things back. There's sense, there's this sense mm-hmm. of gratitude, and I yeah. don't know if it's because of the field that we're studying, or if it's because we're looking at the universe at large. But we feel, at least at some at various stages in the hobby of amateur astronomy, we've, we're grateful for that for the help that we got started out. We're grateful for the advice, the patience that people who had more knowledge than us had and getting us where we were. And then when we finally reach some plateau of some kind, there's this drive to give back and to, you know, pay it forward to those. And that's what you're doing now, Sean. So, um, it's, it's, it, it, as does, I want to echo that what Dustin said, you know, it's, it's valuable and it's, it's critical, not just for the survival of the hobby, but just to remind people that, you know what, we're losing a natural resource Mm -hmm. and we, we really, really, this is precious to us and we should think about it or, you know, don't be intimidated by, you know, going out and looking up might still, my favorite thing to do is to just go outside and sit on and just sit in a chair and look in my, uh, look at the stars on my property. Just to marvel at it. What I love to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's my favorite yeah. thing to do. Yeah. And so um, it's just, it'll always be important. And so, yeah, yeah I just want to say, keep doing what awesome. you're doing. And um, yeah, so definitely anybody who's listening to this podcast, check out Sean Nielsen's uh, uh, work. He's uh, called Visible Dark on YouTube. He's also got visible the website, visible dot, visible dark, uh, visible dark dot CA. Visible dark. <laughs> I'll get it out eventually. My favorite part yeah, of like, every podcast. Visible right dark. Here, here I thought it was an easy name. <laughs> yeah, it, it, here I am. Here I am. The oh, only reason I do this. Uh, yeah. So go there. Dot ca. Uh, visible dark. Dot ca. And then check out his website. Look at his equipment. And uh, you know, interact with him on on YouTube. Do you do any streaming? Uh, no, I actually haven't been into doing any streaming yet, largely because I haven't uh, learned uh, what's involved in it. So um, it's something that I'm looking at, at doing uh, in the future. But well, uh, now that you've got picks inside under your well, belt, now, that's your next now I've got time gotta... to look into the other. <laughs> For sure. <laughs> picks insight check. Yeah. For people that want to support you, what's the best way for them to do that? Um, you know what? I don't do this uh, for anything other than the sheer enjoyment of it. So, you know, if people want to send me an email and just tell me, you know, that uh, um, I've helped them in some capacity, that's fantastic. Mm -hmm. That makes me feel really good. Um, And if they're having trouble with something and they need some help or that they're not getting, maybe they can't find it or maybe my videos or or maybe my website didn't answer the question for them, by all means, just uh, shoot an email to me and I'll, you know, you know, do what I can to answer those questions. Right. Awesome. Thanks. Thank man. you. All right. Well, anything more, Dustin? No, no. This is a wonderful podcast. Thank you for uh, joining us, Sean. I appreciate fun. being on it. Yeah, very much so. Thank you very much. Absolutely. It's been a fun talk. So our guest today was Sean Nielsen. He runs VisibleDark.ca and a YouTube channel by the same name. Check him out. I'm Tony Darnell on behalf of Dustin Gibson. Thank you all so much for listening. And as always, keep looking up. Space Junk is produced by Deep Astronomy and sponsored by OPT Telescopes in Carlsbad, California. Please visit our website at spacejunkpodcast.com. Also, please send any questions and comments or ideas for new episodes to spacejunk at deepastronomy.com.